welcome to the Vintage Saints and Sinners podcast. I'm Karen Wright Marsh, and this is the place to find beautiful and broken companions for your everyday pilgrimage. Do you wonder if Christian faith can be truly lived in today's complex and changing world? Well, here you'll meet embodied witnesses, Christians from different eras and different cultures. They're people we sometimes call saints, but they were also sinners, just like you and me. Today, I'm here to tell the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer with National Evangelical Leader and Pastor Walter Kim. I'm delighted that you're here with us. Bonhoeffer is a well-known Christian hero, the German theologian and pastor who opposed Hitler. He stood up for righteousness and paid the ultimate price when he was executed by the Nazis in 1945. Dietrich did not set out to be a martyr. He was born in 1906, the sixth of eight children, to a psychiatrist and his intelligent wife who raised him in a privileged environment. The family was not especially religious, so when at 13 Dietrich announced his intention to become a theologian, his siblings belittled his choice, arguing that the church was hopelessly irrelevant. Irrelevant? Well, in that case, Dietrich pronounced, I shall reform it. Confident Dietrich graduated from gymnasium in Berlin at 17 and then settled in at Tübingen University joining a fraternity with a fine grand piano. Even as the Weimar Republic continued its downward economic spiral, he was insulated by his family's wealth. He continued to pursue his life of theological learning, enjoying music and art, fine clothes and good friends. During a transformative year of postgraduate study in New York City, he met Christians fully engaged in the world, social reformers, classmates of different races and backgrounds, professors who challenged his very notion of what theology could be. He traveled the country all the way to Mexico and back, even through the Jim Crow South. He taught Sunday school at a church in Harlem. When Bonhoeffer returned to Germany, he faced Nazi banners ornamenting the churches as one minister declared, Christ has come to us through Adolf Hitler. Only 27 years old, the Nazi danger was clear to him, and he had nerve. Within two days of Adolf Hitler's rise to power as chancellor in 1933, Dietrich delivered a radio address repudiating the Fuhrer's perverse promises to the German people. Ten minutes into the broadcast, he was cut off in mid-sentence. It wasn't long before the young troublemaker was officially silenced on account of his challenges to Hitler. Dietrich was convinced that Christ had called him to act. So in 1935, he created Finkenwalde, 
an illegal seminary for dissident Protestant preachers. Even as news came of dissenting pastors threatened, arrested, imprisoned, and forced into the army, the underground seminarians persisted in daily prayer, worship, work, and study. The community was no self-contained, pious retreat from the world. It was a daring demonstration of Christian countercultural witness. In a time of crisis, Dietrich would say, everything depends on the urgent invitation to take the first step into what is still an unknown, a new situation. The Christian community of Finkenwalde comes alive in Dietrich's slim book, Life Together. Yet by the time Dietrich penned those words, the seminary had been torn apart, shut down by the Gestapo. After experiencing this lightning flash of eternity, the beauty that is true Christian community, loneliness lay ahead for Dietrich. The Nazis barred him from preaching and speaking in public. He was fired from his teaching post at the University of Berlin. More and more, Dietrich's convictions were costing him his friendships and his freedom, but he wouldn't back down under pressure. He held fast to the conviction that his allegiance to Christ demanded resistance to the Third Reich. Without it, he could not claim to be a true Christian. In the face of radical evil, the pacifist pastor made a radical choice. He joined the conspiracy to assassinate Hitler. Dietrich sought to understand God's will in the here and now to the very end. In public, he appeared bravely assured, even when his Christian faith took him far out into the world and ultimately to imprisonment by the Nazis. In the two years between his arrest and his death, Dietrich Bonhoeffer never stopped writing. Prayers, poems, scripture studies, theological fragments, book ideas, personal letters to his family and to his friend and soulmate, Eberhard Beitke. From cell number 25 in Tegel Prison, Dietrich's writings brim with creative intelligence, warm love, and always reliance on God. He chose to put himself into God's hands and to live, as he said, unreservedly in life's duties, problems, successes, and failures, experiences, and perplexities. When dark doubts churned within him, Dietrich remained grounded in God's faithfulness. Who am I? He asks in a poem near the end of his life. He concludes with these lines. They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine. The Vintage Saints and Sinners podcast is the audio companion to my book, Vintage Saints and Sinners, 25 Christians Who Transformed My Faith. To learn more, visit my website, karenwrightmarsh.com. 
Please rate and review this podcast on iTunes and invite your friends to join us. Now for my conversation about Dietrich Bonhoeffer with Walter Kim. Well, it's my great pleasure to welcome Walter Kim to the podcast. Walter is the president of the National Association of Evangelicals and pastor at Trinity Presbyterian Church here in Charlottesville. He has served as chaplain at Yale University and taught at Boston College and Harvard University, where he received his PhD in Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations. Walter Kim's commitment to exploring biblical theology and cultural issues is grounded in his personal experience as the child of Korean-American immigrant parents. He's a wonderful pastor, scholar, and human. Thank you for joining me for the Vintage Saints and Sinners podcast. Thank you, Karen. It's delightful to be a part of this. Well, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is, of course, one of our favorite saints, and I'm interested to know how the life and work of Dietrich Bonhoeffer has shaped your own life, the ways in which you view God, the church, and even the world. So my introduction to Bonhoeffer came in the second year of college. I had become a Christian a few years before in a rather dramatic fashion, and it led to a a very deep transformation in my life. As you had mentioned, I'm the son of immigrant parents who had come from Korea to America in the aftermath of the Korean War, and they came to give me opportunities here. And that opportunity came with a very distinct call in my life. So if my family had any doctrine of predestination, it was I was predestined to become a doctor. And that that was their intention for my life. But when I became a Christian at the tail end of my high school career and went off to college, I had entered into a medical program where I did two years of undergrad and then would go straight to to med school. And uh, it was during that end of the first year, beginning of the second year, where I sensed God's call on my life to go into ministry and the realization that I was going to greatly disappoint my parents Mm. with this news. And as the firstborn son of immigrant parents, this was a really big deal. And when I had told them of my decision because I had become a Christian, because I had started sensing God's call in my life, I mean, these were not categories that made much sense to my parents. And it led to tremendous conflict at home where it it, it really felt like I was in the process of um, being disowned. And it was at that time that I read The Cost of Discipleship. And it was transformational. It exploded onto the scenery of my life uh, with the opening paragraph that distinguished between cheap grace and costly grace, and that the work of God, of Jesus in my life, would come with costs. Mm. And part of that cost might have entailed a particular set of interactions uh, and choices that I've, I'd have to make about my life calling. And so Bonhoeffer came into my life in a very powerful moment, not just kind of intellectually shaping my view of theology, of church, of worlds, not giving me a theoretical framework for the cost of discipleship, but really coming to me at a point in my life where I was asking that question of what 
what really is the cost of discipleship? And am I willing to pay that cost? Is Jesus worth it? And I, I would have to say, uh, you know, Bonhoeffer, along with many other influences in my life at that time, really demonstrated to me that Jesus was worth it. And uh, pursuing that call uh, has borne all sorts of fruit in my life for which I am profoundly grateful. Mm. You know, I'd have to say that after making that decision, I had no sense of what God would be doing in my family's life, but I had a lot of hope. And over the course of the next five years, both my parents had become Christians. My brother and sister became Christians. And there was this incredible sense in which God uh, demonstrated that there was a cost of discipleship, but there was also a profound reward. And my father actually told me on the night before he dropped me off to seminary, which he eventually blessed, he told me, you know, that decision that you made was instrumental in my own discipleship and salvation. And, and he thanked me for disobeying him because he felt like it was the only thing that was going to lead him to Jesus. Uh, and, and so, you know, this <laughs> well. amazing sense that what I thought was a cost proved actually to be a reward in following Jesus. Mm, what a story. Well, Walter, are there any valuable theological insights that you wouldn't have if it weren't for Dietrich Bonhoeffer? I think when Bonhoeffer talks about the difference between justification of sin versus the justification of the sinner in the cost of discipleship, that for me was a really important distinction that to enter into a relationship with Jesus was not merely having my sins dealt with, kind of the debt that the sin accrued before God, but that God was keenly interested in who I am as a person and the transformation of my life. And that to understand the work of God's salvation in my life was not simply kind of this forensic exchange in which I got something from God, namely the forgiveness of sin and life in heaven. But it was an embrace of life, that there was something that God was doing in the life of the sinner himself, namely me, and not just with the problem of sin that I had as a person. Mm. And that made sense for why discipleship, why grace would be costly. It came at the cost of Jesus' own life. And it entailed the cost of my own life in response. And that was so important for me to learn as a young Christian and has really carried me in a lifetime of following Jesus and serving him in ministry. Yeah, it's such, an, such a wonderful example of how a theological concept can have such profound personal impact. You know, to your very core, you live, in, you live differently yeah. because of that idea. Well, Walter, you are a respected expert on the theology of race, and your personal story is relevant. I mean, you grew up in Appalachia as an Asian American person, the only minority young person, I believe, in your school. Is there anything in Bonhoeffer that enters into your understanding on this topic of race? I am struck by Bonhoeffer's journey that he came from a family of great privilege and learning. 
and had every advantage of an education that matched his towering intellect. And it would have been easy for him to have theological formation come from the ivory tower. But to have discovered that Bonhoeffer spent some of his time in America worshiping and learning and teaching in the Black Church in Harlem, where he developed this incredible curiosity and generosity of spirit with that tradition of faith, and led him to understand what it means to look at theology and look at the world, as he puts it, not from above, but from below, from the perspective of outcasts, from the perspective of those who were maltreated and the oppressed. And that shaped his understanding of theology. I think there's something profoundly important there, that God has this preference for the outcast, that God has this preference for those who are oppressed, and that the formation of our theology, even if it does come in the rarefied airs of top academic institutions, can't be disassociated from uh, how Jesus went about life, that he came, as he himself stated in his kind of opening address, he came to proclaim the good news to the poor and freedom to the captives. And so for this moment that we're in, where the need to understand and lament with and enter in to the experience of people who have been oppressed, and that oppression persists in its systemic and generational impact, is profoundly important. We're entering into the heart of God. And Bonhoeffer, uh, his own journey and his writings represent that kind of preferential solidarity with uh, those who who are experiencing life from below, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Well, Walter, you recently became the president of the National Association of Evangelicals, and you may have to give us some definitions here, but was Bonhoeffer an evangelical? Yeah, that's a great <laughs> question. Uh, so the question of what is an evangelical right. is really complicated <laughs> right now. It often devolves <laughs> into political affiliations or sociological categories. But you know, the term evangelical was applied to the reformers uh, in the 1600s, and it was applied to the, the pastors and the scholars during the 1700s and 1800s who experienced the first and second great awakening. And, and so what do we mean? What, what are the things that tie these people of faith together in the evangelical tradition? Well, as scholars have noted, there are probably four areas that mark evangelicalism and evangelicals, that, uh, a focus on the Bible, a very high view of the Bible, a focus on the cross, the, the work of Jesus, uh, in salvation, the need for that salvation to have a personal impact in our own conversion and transformation, and that that transformation should lead to an activism, not just a personalized faith, but an active faith that is engaged with social issues. Yeah. These four areas really seem to be the hallmarks of what it means to be an evangelical. And at different times in the history of evangelicalism and in different places, the particular mix uh, might be different, a little bit more Bible-focused than activism or a little bit more of the cross-focused versus uh, conversionism. 
But these four elements seem to be the hallmarks. And when you think about those four elements, Bonhoeffer's particular mix might be different than, say, a Southern evangelicals mix, but they are indisputably all there. The high view of scripture, the, the focus on Jesus as the source of salvation and his work on the cross, the need for conversion that is thoroughgoing, and obviously the outworking of that conversion in courageous faith, which Bonhoeffer lived and in the end died for. If by evangelical we mean these fourfold categories, then I would say Bonhoeffer is an evangelical. Hmm. Would he be an evangelical in a sense that, you know, it's walking into a particular American evangelical church? Maybe, maybe not. But I do believe that Bonhoeffer would have had a capacity and a generosity of spirit and a keenness on the focus, his focus on Jesus, that he would have found a lot to be in sympathy with the evangelical tradition as it's represented here. But, you know, even within America, I think it's better to talk about evangelicalisms rather than evangelicalism, uh, that there are strands of evangelicalisms that occur in different parts of the country and different denominations that lends flavor, and those flavors are different, but there is a kind of a core impulse of spiritual renewal that's expressed in this fourfold division that is characteristic of evangelicals, no matter what flavor you are. And I would say that that shows up in Bonhoeffer. Mm-hmm. Thank you. That is so very helpful, Walter. Well, this is a purely hypothetical and possibly risky question, but how might Dietrich Bonhoeffer speak into this current moment in the United States? You know, I think it is clearly the case that we are in a moment of tremendous polarization. The inability to speak across our differences in a manner that is intent on learning, curious, and even when there is a need to express profound disagreement and challenge. It is done so in a way that understands the innate dignity of the other person. Bonhoeffer said something to this effect that, you know, when we judge others and we're blind to the evil in our own lives, then we are also unaware of the grace to which others are equally entitled as we are. And that kind of ability to hold together the prophetic and the pastoral, to hold together courage and humility, to understand uh, our deep fallenness that makes us really common, the, the evil that lurks in our own heart and the grace that we all need. Wow, if we could have a sense of that, then we would see each other as less as the problem, but that we share a problem in our country. And these are important lessons that I would wish for the church to be the moral and spiritual leaders in that kind of courageous yet humble influence in our society. Well, may it be so. Uh, May it be so. Thank you, Walter, for this enlightening conversation about Dietrich Bonhoeffer and for your own ministry and the ways that that you uh, carry his legacy forth in our church life today.
Thank you for this conversation, Karen. Dietrich Bonhoeffer shows me what it looks like to live faithfully, fully engaged and alive in the world. And I'm intrigued by Walter Kim's story to hear how Bonhoeffer has served as a longtime spiritual mentor to him as well. So what is God calling us to in this current moment? This is an urgent question. Let us borrow courage from Bonhoeffer and step into the future faithfully and without fear. I'm Karen Wright Marsh, the Executive Director of Theological Horizons, a ministry based in Charlottesville at the University of Virginia. I'd love to hear from you. Come by my website, karenwrightmarsh.com. There you'll find show notes and learn about my book, Vintage Saints and Sinners. Download free printable study guides for your small group or just for yourself and keep the conversation going. Thanks to the generosity of the Lloyd and Vivian Noble Foundation and to the Friends of Theological Horizons. The Vintage Saints and Sinners podcast is produced by Gabriel Hunter Chang. Our music is by Will Marsh of Gold Connections.